you so much. Um, it is so wonderful to be here. Um, my husband at the moment is in Cape Town. Um, and so when I got this invitation to, to come to Everyday and venture to Wimbledon, I thought, you know what, it's time for me to have a mini adventure as well. So Becky and I have left Sidcup. We've traveled 15 miles across here and we're having a great time. Um, so we're very grateful um, to be here. It is a real privilege. And we're going to be looking at the whole issue of trusting God today. Um, God, our final trust. And we're going to be spending some time in Jeremiah 17. So if you've brought Bibles with you, you can make your way there. Um, I'm just going to be talking about trust in God and the love of God and this week I'm just reflecting how sometimes I can treat God's love for me a bit like a teenage crush. I don't know if you know that game, some of you probably, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're too mature to have done it with a daisy and you pick the petals off and you say, he or she loves me not. They love me, they love me not. And then you get one petal left and that's the decider, that random like thing in the universe that will decide whether the uh, object of your affection loves you or not. Um, and sometimes I think I can be like that. I don't know if any of you feel like you can be like that where you know the sun's shining and it's been, you know, you're on top of things. You've been all over the spiritual disciplines and you're like, yes, he loves me. And then maybe a week of bad sleep, poor health, um, really tough times at work and you've not even looked at your Bible, it's gathering dust um, in the corner there and you're like, he loves me not. And how often can we, we actually not have assurance of God's love for us? It can sometimes go like this, like rising and falling of waves on the sea. But I regularly need to come back to the basics and there is a, a song that I learned as a child, some of me, you may be familiar with it, which is talking about Jesus' love. And it, the chorus is, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And it's so full of truth and it's basic sometimes that we've got to come back to. You see, from Genesis to, to Revelation, we get this display of a God who is relentlessly pursuing his people, relentlessly loving his people. And God promises to bless the whole earth through a people that he chooses and he calls for himself, a people that he loves. I will be your God, he says, and he promises to protect them. Our God is a God of covenant. He makes promises that he will not break, but a covenant has two partners. So the covenant he makes with the people of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. Again and again, we get that through scripture. If you, then I. So God will be their God and they are going to be his people and they're expected to respond with faithfulness. And they're to love him, we hear in Deuteronomy, with all their hearts and all their souls and all their minds. And yet, as we read through the Old Testament over and over again, we see that Israel is an unfaithful covenantal partner. Over and over again, they're offering their loyalties and their trust and their affections to foreign gods and cults in the surrounding nations. Hosea 6.6 6 just gives us a glimpse of God's heart. He says, I desire steadfast love. He still desires steadfast love. And in chapter 11, verse 3, God's describing his love for his people. And he's saying, but they're so bent on turning away from me. My heart recoils within me. It can be quite amazing sometimes to, to read of God's 
passion for his people and his, his, his love that is a jealous, consuming love when his people are looking elsewhere to find trust and security. It's as if consistently throughout scripture we can hear God calling out, yay, hey, those false gods, they can't love you like I love you. It's like the backdrop of all the book. They can't love you like I love you. They can't be a refuge to you. They can't heal you. They can't protect you. They can't satisfy you like I can satisfy. They can't save you. So why do you give yourselves away? They can't love you like I love you. You give yourselves away to foreign gods, false gods. You turn your heart away from me and You've robbed yourself of my security, my protection. And it's so easy, I find it when I'm reading the Old Testament, to shake my head a bit and be like, oh, come on. God said, if you do that, this terrible thing will happen, so don't do it. Like, don't do it. And yet, over and over again, they do do it. And actually, I shouldn't shake my head because I often make the same mistakes. You see, in our culture today, our idols look very different, but they still are present. They still have power. And God's word is here to redirect us over and over again to the reality of who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do so that we can walk in the fullness of the covenantal promises that he's made to us. And we've got some lessons to learn. So if you don't mind turning to Jeremiah 17, we're going to read the first 10 verses. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim. Beside every green tree and on the high hills and on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory." You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now Jeremiah was born during the reign of a king Manasseh. He was one of the most evil kings to have ever sat on the throne of Judah and you can read all about him in 2 Kings 21 by Phil's book first and then you'll get the whole picture. Um, But this king enthusiastically embraced Assyrian religion. He gave himself over to the worship of idols and he led God's people in doing the same. You see the way kings in Israel and Judah led had a direct implication for the people that they led, for the people that followed them. 
And 2 Kings 21 tells us that he built altars for the whole hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he brought the idols that God so hated right into the sanctuary of God, right into the the temple. And he unleashed so much evil during his long reign. Now, after him came a king called Josiah, and he was a good king, and he tried to implement huge religious and social reforms. At the beginning of his reign, they found, they rediscovered the book of the law, this moment of finding it in the temple and, and hearing it, and as a, as a result, Josiah wants to change everything, to, be, to restore back what was lost, and so he, he gets rid of all the, the idols in the temple, he takes out all the necromancers, he, he destroys all the shrines, and he does things like restoring the observance of the Passover, which had been lost. So Jeremiah, when he's writing, this is the background, he would have supported all of these reforms, but he saw little change in the hearts of people. In the midst of this massive religious reform, idolatry was still rife. Jeremiah kept calling for genuine repentance from the hearts of people because only the genuine repentance from the very hearts of people could avert the calamity that he could foresee when he talked about the foe from the north. That was the rise of Babylon that would eventually come and actually destroy Jerusalem and take the people of Judah into exile. So the context for us is important. We can see in the first four verses of this chapter that idolatry is so rife. Jeremiah says Judah's sin is engraved on the tablets of their heart. It's maybe an odd description to us, but he's basically saying they have hard hearts of stone. And the heart in Hebrew is not so much just a seat of um, the emotions and how you feel, and, but it's actually a place where decisions are made. It's a place to do, it's much more to do with the will. So he's saying that there is this willful rebellion going on from people's hearts. Asherah, we read Asherah in verse 2. She was honoured as a fertility goddess in various forms and names. And worship of this goddess was linked to um, the worship of Baal, which you've probably heard about as you've, as you've read through it. And Asherah poles were female fertility symbols. And the evidence of them we hear is, was everywhere. Every green tree, high hills, mountains, and open fields. You see, where the natural world speaks of the the glory of God, the trees, the fields, the mountains, speak about the glory of a living God, the one true God. In those places, people had erected these, these idols. And idols haven't lost their power today. They just take on different forms. And in Judah, sin was so ingrained, it was so normal that children just took it as a way of life. Their parents' idols became their idols. And so in this context, we get this remarkable poem about two trees. Verse 5 describes someone who doesn't trust in God, but chooses instead to make flesh his strength. His confidence is in man. And what's this person like? Well, verse 6 describes this person as a shrub. Now, you might have shrubs in your gardens that are quite pretty. Um, it's a bit misleading if you think that this might be a, just a pretty little shrub. Actually, the, the Hebrew word is ara, and it comes from um, sort of Hebrew naked. And it's actually describing a bush that is, is twisted, naked. It's not bearing fruit. It's ugly. The ver- tree, however, in verse 8 is a green tree. It's healthy. It offers shade. It's fruitful. Now, this might sound like an obvious question, but it's really important for us today. What makes the difference between those two trees? And the answer is to do with the roots. It's below the surface. 
Biologically speaking, the roots of a shrub and the roots of the tree will be different in nature, but that's not the point here. The point is, is that where the roots are rooted determines what's going on above the surface, the whole tree. And Jeremiah is saying that when it comes to sin and turning away from God, the people of Judah, what, that, what the people of Judah were doing, it's an issue to do with trust. It's an issue to do with where trust is found, where confidence and hope are sourced. Roots help anchor a plant. They help a tree from falling over when there's a storm. The, tree, the roots also draw up nutrients from the, the, the soil and water, and, they, and it gets transferred to the whole of the tree. So a heart that is turning away from God belongs to someone who is putting their roots into something besides God. And we have the imagery here that's basically like two different orientations of the heart correspond to two different orientations of the roots. Whether we put our roots into God or not determines everything. What does the Bible mean when it talks about being rooted into God? Well, we've read it. It's about trust, confidence, faith. Just like a plant has roots, we all have a system of, of belief, of trust in something. And Jeremiah's stark warning to us is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Is your heart sick? Is my heart sick? Are our roots in God? Are we rooted in his love? And you might be thinking, yeah, I think so. But how do I know? If my heart is deceitful above all things, how do I actually know where my roots are? And I've just, I found a few questions helpful over the years to, to ponder truthfully to myself um, to help me discover where, where my roots are. So here are some questions that maybe you'd like to think about. What do I worry about the most? What scares me? What if I lost it would crush me and lay me bare? And the other side, the flip side of those questions are these. Where do I go to be refreshed? Where do I go to be restored? Where do I go to find life, to find joy, to be delighted? Where does my mind go? Now mentally, just going to be, I go to all sorts of unhelpful places. I don't catch myself. I can be quite materialistic. My mind can often go to thinking about how I can improve my life, my home, make it more comfortable. I think comfort is one of those, maybe the idols of the day. We sort of make this assumption that our lives are supposed to be comfortable. I can drift into thinking about my accomplishments. Even like ministry areas I'm involved with, I find my mind just goes to how well it might be going and, and kid myself, I'm not trying to steal God's glory. <laughs> I can be so tempted sometimes to escape reality, social media, mindlessly watching Netflix. Maybe for some of us here, it's porn. Maybe your mind goes also to people. Romance, having children, your career, even your holiday plans, hobbies, goals. Where do our minds go? Because they are going somewhere. And if they're not going to God when we're looking to source life and joy, then they could easily be going to things that are our modern-day Asherah. William Temple said that our religion is really seen in our solitude. It's really seen in the things that we give our minds to, our thoughts to. Where do our minds and our hearts go when they need to be delighted? See, what we're talking about here isn't primarily about rule-breaking. 
Let's be clear with this whole passage, these 10 verses, Jeremiah, when he's talking about sin, he's not just saying you've done something wrong and you've broken some laws. He's saying you've not made God your final trust. You've not made God your delight. Ouch. See, we're only going to be rooted and grounded when our roots draw from him. God alone wants to be the source of our confidence and trust, which means that we need to cultivate our roots to delight in God above other delightful things. What so struck me in this passage, actually, is the reference to fear and anxiety. I spend a lot of time, actually, in our church with people that are struggling with fear and anxiety. This is not just an issue for out there. This is very much something that we need to to face and learn to deal with. The person who trusts in the Lord does not fear when heat comes and is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What do we make of this as our nation experiences unprecedented levels of fear and anxiety? There's no easy answers. But fear and anxiety, we need to recognize them for what they are. They're not modern. They're not this modern phenomena. They're a condition of mankind that is fallen. And from within the word of God itself, we get so many examples and voices of people of faith that struggle against waves of anxiety and fear and depression. We have to ask when we come to the word of God as our foundation for life, what does this word speak to us on this issue? What is this passage saying to us? Let's look again at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Now there's a second clause there. I don't know if you noticed it when you first went through. There's almost like a repetition. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Why? Why is there a second clause? And usually when the Bible repeats itself, it's because it's making a really important point. So why the second clause? Well, it's clearly possible to trust in the Lord, but not make the Lord your trust. Let's just unpack this. If we're reading that poem, from the outset, it seems to just be describing two people. First person, a person who doesn't trust in God. They make flesh their strength. So we're talking about an irreligious person. My life is my own, and I'm going to source life from wherever I want it to be sourced from. Secondly, we get a person who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. This person has roots that go deep into God, his streams of living water. Subtly, there's a third type of person there. A religious person, in the sense that they are a Christian, they've been planted by the stream, but their trust in God is for something else. They trust in God, but the Lord isn't the final destination of their trust. And this has a personal meaning to me because when I first had children, I've got three children, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And when I first had children, I, I just couldn't believe, A, how much I loved them, and B, how fragile they were and how responsible I felt. And I experienced real fear um, in, in a very... I know you're sleep-deprived as well, so I was just like, oh, um, what's going on? felt like I'd been hit by a train. And it was just this overwhelming sort of anxiety about stuff that I couldn't control and I didn't really know what to do and was I doing the right thing? And people would, you know, very kind to me. They'd say, things, you know, trust in the Lord. And I was like, yes, trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust in the Lord. Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting in you. And then I just started thinking, what am I trusting you for? Like, that's an important question. What am I trusting in you for? And if it's 
to, that everything will always be okay, which is kind of what I wanted it to be. I knew uh, there was something in me that just resonated. I just thought, I know that that's not in the word. Like, I know that that's not a promise, that everything will go smoothly and your kids will always be okay. And I knew that because I'd already been to funerals of small children who were born to Christian parents. And I, I knew that couldn't be what I was trusting in God for. See, brothers and sisters, we can trust in God, but not make him our trust. And that's what I was really battling with. It's easy to trust if you have assurance that your plans are aligned with God's plans or his plans are aligned with yours. And then it's easy to trust. But if anything's a condition for our faith in God, it's a conditional trust. And that condition is likely to be the real object of our faith. We can trust in God, but not make him our final trust. Now, this might seem heavy, but this is, it's the opposite. This is freeing. You know, freedom, like Jesus came, I've come, that they may know freedom, the truth will set them free, freedom, life to the full. This is why it's so freeing, because this can free us when we surrender to this trust, this trust that God demands. You know, throughout Scripture, there's a repeated command. The most frequent repeated command in Scripture from God is, do not be afraid. Isn't that amazing? To his people, he knows us. He really knows us. The most repeated command, do not be afraid. God is saying, I know you, and I know you need to put your hope and your trust in something bigger than yourself, bigger than your own plans and your purposes, into something that cannot let you down. So put your hope into me. Put your trust into me, my character, my plans, my purposes. And when I was really honest, I realized what I was kicking up against and what I kick up against when I do experience fear and anxiety is the realization that I want God's plans to center around me, really. But we know from the Word, and we know from the Holy Spirit who brings us conviction in those moments, that actually God's plans center around his glory and not our comfort. We don't get promises that this life is easy or comfortable, anything but, actually. But we get God. We get God with us. We get God for us. There are mind-blowing promises that we can cling on to in Scripture that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, not your past, not your future, not anything, no spiritual reality, not even death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing promise of God, and he is good, and he is sovereign. You heard earlier, we're living in this age of uncertainty, uncertain times. We know we can't put our final trust in politicians. We know we can't put our final trust in the media, or even our friends, or even our spouses, or even our church leaders. Our final trust needs to be in God, because he's sovereign, and that brings peace to us, because nothing that can come your way in life, nothing that can happen next week after we find out if there's been a deal or not, is going to surprise God. Nothing can surprise him. He's not going to be confused. Think, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's just who he is. He's, he's sovereign. He's outside of time. He sees from the end from the beginning. And that is such good news for us. He can't be surprised. He's an unstoppable God. And his glory will go, go on and on and on and on and on. And of his kingdom and governance, there will be no end. That, has a, that truth has a direct implication for us in how we live every day and how we view our everyday life. We trust that his plans are greater than our plans. 
So now when I pray about my kids, I'm just saying, not help nothing bad to ever happen to them, but Lord, your will be done. Let us bring glory to your name through whatever our, wherever our lives take us. I do pray for protection over them, but I'm, I'm praying for his purposes and trusting that they are bigger than my purposes and my plans and my dreams. It's a surrendering of, of the things that I hold so tight and saying, I trust you. You're bigger than me and your plans are greater than mine. He already knows how our pain and our trials in this life will work together for our good. Doesn't that bring you assurance today? Everything that you're going to face in the rest of your life, he's already planned how it can be used for your good. That in Romans 8, the verse is going to come up. There's, that's a promise because he works all things for good for those who love him. Who's it for? For those who love him according to what? His purposes. Okay, that is a promise according to his purposes. No promise of God can be thwarted. It was wonderful in that contribution earlier, talking about Job. Because actually at the end of his suffering, he arrives at this. For I know that you can do all things. This is Job. I know you can do all things. And I know that no purpose of God can be thwarted. This is what I come back to all the time. Like I know you can do all things. And that you, no purposes of you, God, can be thwarted. What a confidence we can have. Do we trust him? He's saying today, I want you to put your roots into me. And if you're not a Christian here today, this is how. Firstly, you need to be planted next to a stream. Verse 8, that tree was planted next to the river. Trees can't plant themselves. It can't just shift, take up and go, oh, I don't like it over there. The soil's better here and move. No, we need rebirth. We need a non-tree type person, if you like, to lift us up out of our old way of living and to plant us next to the stream, the stream of living water. Many saints throughout history, millions and millions and millions of them, have been taken out of the soil where they were spiritually thirsty and parched and malnourished and naked, and they've been lifted up, rescued and planted next to the stream, the river of life. God did this for me, and he's done it for many of you. And you can know that that's happened when you feel this uneasiness, like your roots are being taken off old things and being put into new things. Dying to the old way of life, old habits, old ways of thinking, old things, old patterns of behavior. And that's a tension we feel when we get new birth, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's a new way to live. So what happens when we get saved? There's this new reality. This promise as we're next to this river that he will never run dry. But you know what? We have to cultivate our roots. When you become a Christian, you get your roots planted next to the stream. There's no automatic feeding system where you just automatically you mature and grow just by nature of being saved and the time you've spent as a Christian. No, we have to cultivate our roots in order to grow. We recognize this physically. Something goes a bit wrong if you don't grow. But the norm is that we grow up, mature, and get bigger and wiser. It's the same spiritually. Now I have a, a friend at our church at New Community who I've known for the last sort of six years or so and the first real conversation I had with her, a lady in her late 50s, was when she was in tears and she just, she just had great courage and she said, you know what, I'm not where I should be. I've been a Christian for 30 years and I've not grown. I've not matured as I should have done. And I really respected her courage to just call it out and say it. Um, and there's a popular Chinese proverb, you've probably heard it, um, we say it quite a bit in your community, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. 
the second best time is today. And um, this particular lady, she resolved, um, she resolved to grow. She was just done. She's like, I'm going to grow. I'm not going to make excuses. She didn't get her head down. She didn't get discouraged. She didn't play the blame game, make excuses. She just resolved that she was going to start getting deeper into the things of God. Started very simply. I'd see her on a Sunday. She'd be like, oh, I've read another psalm. You know, reading a few verses every day. But, you know, years on, she's now, she's done the academy. She's now discipling younger women. She leads a thriving community by herself. You know, I've just so much respect because it this is not, but there's breath in your lungs, it's never too late. And if you're sat there thinking, oh, you know, actually, it doesn't matter what age you're at, what stage of life you're at, the, the second best time is now. You can do it now because all of us have to keep digging. All of us keep digging because we've got to keep growing. And we don't stop digging until we see him face to face and the storm's over and we, we can enjoy eternity with our Savior. I honestly believe that when you're born again, there's a desire in you to grow deeper. But sometimes desire is not alone. And I would like just to mention that sometimes there are things that happen in people's lives that really mean that they are stuck and they find it really hard to then push into the things of God. Praying with a, someone else at the end of a meeting who said, told me about a very traumatic thing that happened in their life when they were 19. And they just said, as a result, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, I stopped trusting God and I've not grown beyond that. Um, so sometimes trauma, sometimes wounds that haven't been healed, sometimes the, pa the past has a power that's hard to break. There are reasons sometimes why it's very hard to, to get your roots into the stream. So Christians who don't grow into maturity or bear fruit. But our confidence is in this God who broke the power of hell and sin and shame and the past who wants us, his will for us is to grow, to grow up in God. And when, when God's, that's God's will, he, he will give us what we need in order to push through on those obstacles to us. Maybe you're stuck like my friend and you haven't grown in your love for the word. Sometimes I talk to Christians who say, oh, I just don't get it. Like, God must just really love other people more than me because they enjoy him so much more. I just don't get it. They all look happy, like they're enjoying themselves. I read my Bible and I don't even know where to start and it doesn't mean anything to me. The reality is you've just got to start and you've got to keep asking the Holy Spirit to bring it to life. And the, the, the wonderful thing is that he's, he's got you. Like, he wants to, to work through you. He wants to, to speak to you. There's really good news for us because his heart is to, to, to help us to enjoy him. It's really hard to, to trust someone and love someone if you don't know them, right? Like, I would find it really hard to trust and really love someone that I didn't really know. And yet we've got this word that, that is full of a revelation of who God is. And the more we know of him the more we can trust him, the more we can love him. You know, it's good news. You know, billions of people for us have been rooted from the wilderness and planted by God, that's us, next to the river. But there was one person in human history who was by the river and then got uprooted and thrown into the wilderness, into the desert, only one, Jesus. He'd known the river of God, he'd known intimacy, he'd known dependency with God, and he laid aside that majesty and was thrown into the spiritual desert, forsaken on another tree at Calvary. And he carried that tree on his back and he hung on it, and scripture testified that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He died the death that we should have died and took our sin upon himself. 
so that we can live in the reality of verses 8 and 9. We can be that tree. He lost the river on the cross so that we could find it. Cultivating deep roots into God is not about us buckling down, trying harder, doing better. It's about resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, savoring the work that he's done for us, savoring the love that he has for us. The power of the cross is bigger than any obstacle in your life that is preventing you from growing and enjoying God. We don't grow beyond it, we grow deeper into the gospel. And Jesus was fully human. No shortcuts. He knew what it was to, to fear something. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his, his agony, he was, he was crying out to God and said, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like, but for the joy set before him, he endured it so that we could be healed in a way that Jeremiah longed for. He did it for us. You see, Manasseh was a terrible king. Josiah was a pretty good king. But Jesus, Jesus is our perfect forever king. And the way he walks before God now can define how we walk before God. His trust in God and his purposes can become our trust in God and his purposes. With the shed blood of Jesus, God creates a people who will not forsake him. That's what the blood of Jesus did. That's the new covenant, a people who will not forsake him. We're going to have communion together in a few moments, and we can remember in those moments Jesus and the fact that all of us, every single one of us, can have Jesus, God, as our final trust because of his broken body, his shed blood for us. Jeremiah just saw it as shadows. We see it all. Our awaited Messiah Because of Jesus, you know what? It's not sin engraved on your heart anymore. If you're in Christ, you don't have sin engraved on your heart anymore. He's done a work by his grace so that you can be willing from your heart, because you have a new heart, willing from inside your will to love him and to trust him. Through the cross, God secures our allegiance to the covenant. The certainty of being a people today who do not forsake God now rests on his incredible power within us. It's not a skin-deep trust. We can experience heart-deep trust and love and faithfulness because he first loved us and gave himself for us. Shall we stand and respond to him? Jesus, we want to just recognize that You did it for us. (laughs) We don't have to strive. We don't have to try. We don't have to beat ourselves up and say, I should do better. We'll try harder. You, You did it for us. You did it for love. We praise you for your victory on the cross. We were singing that earlier. We praise you for your victory. We thank you for being obedient and willing to go into the wilderness and, and, and bear our shame and our sin in your body. We praise you for the cross. And Holy Spirit, we want to we wanna be able to trust God. We want to be able to have God as our final trust. We don't want conditional trust. We don't want to be able to trust in God for something else. But we want to we wanna be able to surrender our plans and our purposes to, to God's plans and purposes. So would you help do that work in our hearts, Holy Spirit? And if there are areas in people's lives just across this room right now where that are blocking, that are obstacles to, to really trusting you and getting into 
deep into the things of God. We trust that you'll bring revelation right now. And God, we want to go on a process of dealing with that, releasing pain if it needs to be released, inviting you into those areas of our lives and experiencing freedom. Because you've, you want us to experience freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from crippling anxiety. You want, us to, you want us to be able to lift our eyes and see that you are sufficient for us. Your love is sufficient for us. And we trust you and we trust your purposes. We love you, God, and we want to live a life that glorifies you and display you to a watching world that just doesn't understand where our peace comes from. And it comes from you. So will you fill us now? as we respond to you. Amen.